0: Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. So, this morning we're continuing our study through the the Book of Nehemiah today, focusing on Nehemiah five. Last week we looked at, at Nehemiah four. And we kind of found that there was this opposition that was coming against Nehemiah, primarily from the outside. Right? There was these different groups uh, that were surrounding the uh, the city of Jerusalem. There was the Sumerians, the the Arabs, and and these different groups that were attacking verbally Nehemiah and the people of Israel. Nehemiah um, was was being not necessarily physically attacked, but they they were coming against and saying what what do you think you're doing? Do, do you really think you can pull this off? And, and so there is this process that, that people had to go through to, to recognize what, what was at stake? What was it, the cost if they failed? And so today we're going to see that, that, that conflict that's happening from the outside in, un- unfortunately, it doesn't just come from the outside. Inside the walls can have just as many struggles. We can have just as much conflict within ourselves as we can from outside influences and those from the outside. And in terms of being able to receive correction, being able to be chastised by the Lord, this morning there's a level of introspection that is going to be required. We're going to have to look at this and say, God, are there areas in my life where I need to to adjust, I need to shift, I need to to change behavior so that I'm not part of the problem? There's a a quote from J. Vernon McGee. It says, in the history of the church, we've seen that when the devil could not destroy the church by persecution, the next thing that he did was to join it. If you have been a Christian for very long, you have probably been in a church where there has been a split, where there's been a disagreement, where there's been a a complete falling out that has happened within the church body to where one group goes this way and one goes the other. And in this world where sin exists, that's going to happen. There are going to be disagreements. That that is inevitable. We are sorry guys, we are never going to be in this building and you agree with 100% with everything that I say. (laughs) That would be great if we all did that, but that just isn't the way it works. We have to be committed to sound doctrine. We have to be committed to a specific standard. And when that standard isn't met, there has to be a level of correction that takes place. And did you know correction sometimes isn't received well? If church leaders, if pastors are obedient to God, then they're supposed to confront serious errors and sinful behavior. But when they do, even if they follow scripture and act in love and and say all of the right things, there's always somebody who's going to react negatively and leave. (laughs) That, that, That just happens because that's the world that we live in. But is that the right way that it's supposed to happen? No. And so what we're going to see today is an actual perfect example of how correction is supposed to be delivered and how correction is supposed to be received. So no matter what the cause of of disunity is, we need to strive to address those conflicts, address those problems that exist within the church in a way that is according to what the Bible says. Paul says, uh, be diligent that we're to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4.3. Romans 14.19 says, we should pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. 1 Peter 3.11, if we want God's blessing, it says we must seek peace and pursue it. And sometimes, as a leader, sometimes as someone who is involved in, in having those conversations, those uh, addressing those conflicts, sometimes it just feels like maybe the easiest way to address this conflict is to just... Ignore it and hope that it goes away. Matt, you're not, you're not supposed to say that. You're a pastor. That's not right. But can I tell you that that is absolutely something that crosses my mind on a regular basis? Man, I would love to not have this awkward conversation with this person. I don't want to be doing this right now. There are a thousand other things I would rather be doing. but is us sweeping this problem under the rug, this sin under the rug, is that going to further the kingdom of God or is that going to just create a larger problem down the road? It's B. So as we saw last week, Nehemiah didn't, he didn't really have smooth sailing when it came to trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It wasn't like this, hey, this is gonna be like just a weekend project Chapters 4 and later, we're going to see chapter 6. They show how there was opposition that was going on. And and so, what we see in chapter 5 is that opposition wasn't just outside, it was within. So, Nehemiah 5 1 through 5, let's read that. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. And others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, although we're of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we've had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So we have a problem. Verses one through five, they, they focus on the complaints of, of this class of, of people, this class of, of Jews that are, are, are bringing a complaint against the wealthy Jews who are either ignoring the, the need that is actually existing or they're actually actively making it worse. And this little social disagreement, this social conflict that's taking place is now made worse by there being a famine in the land, famine being like a drought or just a failure for crops to grow, whatever the the case may be. There's something that is causing food production to not work correctly. So that those who who own property were trying to mortgage their property in order to buy the grain that they needed in order to live... Others had to borrow money because once they mortgaged their property, they weren't able to pay the interest on it, so they were borrowing money to pay the interest that they needed to pay. Some didn't have the money to pay that interest, and so their response to that was, well, we need to sell our children to be able to survive. Just pause for a minute and think about what drives you to the point of needing to sell your kids. that's a different culture back then. That was, that was a different time back then. I agreed. But there's a reason that the men and their wives brought this complaint. There's, there's something that's affecting the family at this point. If we go back to Jewish law, if you look at uh, the book of Deuteronomy, we know that loaning money with interest... Wasn't something that was supposed to happen. If, if you were going to make a loan available to a, a another Israelite in your family, your your Jewish family, right? If you were going to do that, it had to be interest free. There was not you were not supposed to charge interest. And so what we see here, first off, is that the wealthier Jews were not only charging interest, but they were also taking their own family members their the people their own people's children as collateral for the loan so again how did they get into the the problem that they were into how did how did they get into this place where all of jerusalem was torn down where there wasn't any stones standing where the the gates were burned they got into that spot by not following what god told them to do right they by not following the law And so now Nehemiah is hearing that the the practice is taking place of one social group attacking another social group counter to the law that was specifically stated. And Nehemiah says, no. We just got out of this mess. We just spent 70 years getting out of this mess to, to come back and put this thing together. We cannot go back to doing this again. And so Nehemiah saw this problem specifically as important enough to say, hey, we're, we're working on rebuilding an entire city wall, but I'm going to need to put that on pause for a minute and deal with you guys not playing nice with each other. This has to get fixed. This cannot go on. And the way that he deals with this issue, the way he deals with this problem is a clear indicator of how we should approach resolving conflict in the church and in our lives on a daily basis. And again, conflict has to be resolved. It doesn't get to be ignored. So to resolve conflicts biblically, there first has to be, the person has to know that there's a conflict. The person that is doing the resolving has to know that there is one. This seems so obvious. I cannot tell you how I, I'm in leadership. Okay, I'm in leadership here. I'm in leadership in, in as a director of an IT company. I'm in leadership in a lot of different areas of my life, and I cannot tell you how often that people are are hurting, people are complaining, people are upset because they are being wrong. That there's something that's not being addressed, and I ask, well, did you tell anybody about it? Well, no. It's like I would love to fix that problem. I I would. The, I'm a guy, like, that's like built into me that, that I want to solve, ask my wife. She's, she like, we get to the point where I sometimes am asking, like, do you want me to fix this or is this a listening conversation right now? <laughs> and so that, that, that's in us, that we, we want to find the problem. We, we want to find the solution to the problem. But I can't do that if I don't know about it. So the first step in, in doing this actually doesn't, doesn't fall on the person who's, who's doing the resol- resolving of the conflict. The first step in the process is the person who has the problem. Bring the problem to the right person. Don't bring your problem to every single person in the church directory saying, I'm really upset about this thing to the person who has no way to fix it and then bring it to the next person in line because you had a good conversation with them and, and pretty soon there's this gossip chain that's going all the way up until finally you hit somebody who's able to do something about it and now the whole church is in disunity because they're playing guitar on the stage that you didn't like the way it was going. Sometimes the response that I hear He said, well, I didn't want to bring it to you, or I didn't want to bring it to that person who's in charge because they were too busy. I didn't want to bother them. They they didn't have the the time to do that. Do you think Nehemiah was busy? I think Nehemiah was pretty busy. I think there was a lot of stuff... That he was doing and yet he was able to prioritize he recognized this thing this specific concern is important enough to where this needs to take priority that is a god-given gift that is given to a leader the ability to prioritize and to recognize this thing has just become the most important thing and that's okay Don't take on that responsibility of prioritizing your issue or deprioritizing the, the problems that you have. If there's something that's going on in your life, bring it to the person that is able to help resolve the conflict. But be patient as they assess and, and set the priority of that specific item. And let's be clear everything that we bring is the most important thing, right? But if we stop and think for a moment, how does this fit in with the overall mission that God has placed that I'm a part of, that you are a part of? Let's, let's figure out how that works. And not to minimize the issue, but to recognize how it, it should be addressed and, and what time it should be addressed. To resolve conflicts biblically, leaders have to deal with complaints in a biblical way. Nehemiah 5, 6 through 19, it says, When I heard their outcry in these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what, are you, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us even stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest that you are charging them, one percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more of them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, excuse me, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Okay. So Nehemiah could have responded back to these people and said, I'm busy. Come back later. But he realized that the problem that was being brought was significant and that it needed to be dealt with. So he interrupts his attention on the wall and he listens to help resolve the matter. And he did some specific things that we need to look at. He got angry and sometimes when we think about getting angry we immediately default to you shouldn't get angry that's that's bad that's wrong that that is not the case however it's important to question why we're getting angry am i getting angry about this particular event because it's, it's doing something that's affecting me? Am I angry because it's, it's, there's some selfish motive that is drawing driving that? The, the Bible clearly says that there were times when Jesus got angry. He got angry at the, the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees in Mark 3, 5, but obviously Jesus didn't sin when he got angry, right? If our anger is directed against the sinful treatment of others, and if we allow that anger to move us toward constructive means of making those things move back into alignment with what God has, has directed, then that's absolutely appropriate. But sinful selfishness and pride can very easily get mixed into that response. It is right to get angry about sinful practices such as child abuse, such as pornography, abortion, racism, the the mistreatment of women, any of those things that we think about. Absolutely get angry about those. But we're supposed to direct our anger appropriately. Not only appropriately, righteously. And yet, in the same time that where he was angry, he exercised self-control before Nehemiah went off and had the conversation with the the people that were, were bringing this uh, practice down on, on this uh, the the lower class that was was having this problem, he stops and he pauses and and he he considers and I'm going to guess he probably had some time where he prayed. Sometimes what we can do, the best thing that we can do is nothing. The best thing that we can do is just wait for a moment. And, and before I react emotionally, I need to wait and get direction of, of from the Lord in terms of how we should uh, approach the situation. Proverbs 16:32 says, "He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city." After he exercises self-control, he follows these principles of biblical confrontation. Yet, we don't like that word. Confrontation is not a word that we want to participate in. It's easy to get angry and cool off, but then there needs to be some level of confrontation to make it right. In this particular situation, instead of Nehemiah addressing the people, what if he started kind of going down the road of like, well, what if these people get defensive? What if the, the people, the, this class of people that has a little bit more money than the rest of the group, what if they leave? What if, what if they stop working on the wall? What if they, they turn against me and start viewing me as an enemy? They, they could really cause a whole bunch of damage. Maybe I should just wait until the wall's done and then I could deal with this issue instead of making everybody upset about it. I mean, that's a common thought, but that's not the right way to go about dealing with it. If there's a problem, if there's sin that exists, it needs to be addressed. And so first, he goes out, we see in verse 7, and he privately confronts the people that are causing the problem. The the pattern that we see of how to do this is, is pretty clearly spelled out in Matthew, where it says, Talk to your brother in private, and if they don't change, then bring it up in the group. Now, obviously, Nehemiah didn't have the benefit of Jesus, you know, however many years later, but he was still following the same approach. He was approaching them privately saying, hey, this needs to be fixed, and I think we can probably make the guess that they didn't change because he had to go to the group. (laughs) So he goes to the group and he says, hey, we've got some problems, He calls a great assembly and he spells out the problem. He rebukes the leaders. He wasn't really pulling any punches. He rebukes the leaders. He points out exactly what it is that's going, what they're doing wrong and how it is not in accordance with what the the Jewish law says. And then he puts himself out there as the example, saying, look at what I'm doing. Come alongside and join me in what I'm doing. Give back what you've taken. Let's make this right so that we can get back to what it is that God has called us to do. Setting a, a personal example of what it means to be a follower of God. There's a reason that we sometimes hesitate to to enter into confrontation that we hesitate to enter into correction and that's because we are afraid that our own mistakes our own uh, sin in our own life is going to get called out judge not lest you be judged as it comes to mind right sometimes that little crutch comes in and says well we'll just let that one slide It'll be fine. That's why, as those of us who are called to be leaders, we're all called to be leaders in different places, by the way. You need to figure that one out. But when we're called to be a leader, we need to look at the areas of our life that need to be addressed so that we are able to port ourselves out as an example to be followed. Nehemiah shows that leaders must be above reproach. He spent his own money to redeem Jews from slavery. He loaned money out without interest. And we don't know at what point Nehemiah was actually appointed governor, but we see towards the end of that chapter that he's not taking any of the food that he is that all of the other governors were able to do, all of the funds that went to preparing his table, none of that was actually being done for Nehemiah. He was feeding 150 people off of one cow and a couple of sheep. And sure, for us, that seems like, man, that's, that's a lot. But when you start considering he's feeding 150 people, it's not that much. So he laid aside his rights. He said, yes, I, I'm owed this, but I'm not going to take advantage of my position. I'm not going to take advantage of my power. One thing that it says is that he and his men didn't buy any land. One thing that we know about investment is if, you, if you're going to cut, show up and, and buy a plot of land that doesn't have a wall around it, and then you know that in a few years, there's going to, or in a few months, there's going to be a wall around it, odds are the price of that land is going to go up a lot. Nehemiah could have bought all the land in the area that wasn't walled in at a super low price. And as soon as the wall went up, the price of that land was going to skyrocket. And he would have made a lot of money. But he didn't do that. Nehemiah feared God and he cared about God's people. There has to be, for those of us that are in leadership, there has to be this constant reminder. Why are you there? Are you there for the the benefits and the perks of the position? Or are you there because you love Jesus and you love the people of God? He was generous and he was ready to share. He was committed to the work that needed to be done. He worked for the the approval of God. That was the, the point. That was the purpose. It was never for the approval of people. So Nehemiah exercised righteous anger under control. He confronted those at fault biblically. He set a godly personal example. And the most remarkable thing in this entire chapter is that when he confronted them with their wrong behavior, they agreed and gave everything back. (laughs) And what's interesting here is for many of us, that would have been like, whew, they said said yes. (laughs) They agreed. This could have been so much more awkward. And we, we immediately return back to the thing that, that we need to do. But what does Nehemiah do? He didn't say, that's wonderful, God bless you. He says, well, okay, if you agree, let's have you swear it publicly in front of the priest. And let's, let's put a nail on this so that we don't have to come back again. At my work, I call that trust, but verify Where, yeah, I I trust that you are going to do the thing that you say you're going to do. I'm also not dumb enough to not come back and check afterwards. Uh Nehemiah required accountability. We are full of good intentions. Did you know that sometimes good intentions don't make it into real life practice? So he takes these rich men and he has them make a public oath before the priests that they would follow through and do exactly what they said they were going to do. And then he shakes out his robe as a symbol in front of them. So leaders, we need to hold people accountable to their promises before God and before the the congregation. And for those of you that are maybe on the other side of this process, you need to do what you say you're going to do. I need to do what I say I'm going to do. So to resolve conflicts biblically, people have to air complaints to the proper authorities. Leaders must deal with those complaints in a biblical manner. And finally, to resolve conflicts biblically, people must be willing to submit to God, to his word, and to godly leaders. Those three things are what it means to resolve conflict. And the problem is that when leaders confront people with wrongdoing, all too often, the reaction is either anger, is defensiveness, is denial, or they just totally ignore and move on to another church. But we see that the opportunity as we see here in Nehemiah 5, is that there can be growth. There can be a, a reuniting of the people of God. There can be restoration of families. There can be restoration of entire peoples with a reunited focus on the overall goal that God has put in front of these people of constructing the wall when conflict is handled correctly, when correction is received correctly, So this morning, and we're wrapping up right now, this morning, you may find yourself in one of two places here. We, we may either find ourselves on the, on the end of, man, I sure wish that when I brought correction to people that they would respond this way. Maybe you're the person bringing that correction, or maybe you're finding yourself on the other end of, of that person who's receiving Maybe you're that person who's, who's bringing the issue up to the leader that needs to be addressed. Maybe you find yourself in both of those roles in different areas of your life. That's okay. But our responsibility is to recognize that this, this interaction is going to happen because we are in a church where, where disagreement is going to take place. There is never going to be a time where we all agree completely 100%. And so knowing that, how do we deal with those times where we are in disagreement? Like this. This is how we do it. So if I do something that that needs to have correction, then what we need to do is we need to go to the people that are responsible for bringing correction into my life, go to the council we go to, we, we follow those specific processes and I need to be ready to receive that correction and say, I receive that and I'm applying it to my life and I will allow you to hold me accountable to move forward in a way that honors the Lord. That's how I need to respond to correction in my life. Now, the, shoe goes, the, the street goes both ways here, guys. So when there's correction that happens on the other end, let's have a conversation and not just say, well, I'm not going to go to this church anymore. Or, well, I'm just not going to participate in this ministry anymore since there's a correction that's coming towards me. Now, let's be clear. Is there opportunity to say, well, I disagree with the correction that's coming? Yeah. But if we're following this process, the outcome should always be a stronger, more united body of Christ. That, that's how we know that this is working the way it's supposed to, regardless of the outcome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would that you would reveal to us the areas in our life where correction is needed, that you would reveal to us how we can best go about having those types of interactions, Lord. God, we want there to be unity in the body. We want your kingdom to be an example. We want to be that example to to the world that they, they can look at and see what it means to be a follower of Christ. God, don't let us get distracted by the the personal squabbles, the personal arguments that that come up. Lord, help us to set those things aside and, and recognize them as the distraction that they are. And God, instead, help us to focus on the main thing, which is your saving work on the cross. Lord, we thank you For this time, we thank you for this opportunity to be together this morning. Lord, I ask that you would bless us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop.